I suspect most of us have got some type of priorities, goals, and aspirations that we're really wanting to try and achieve and, and pursue. Uh, for instance, if you're a mom and dad, I'm sure that one of your goals in life is to see your kids to be healthy and well-educated and safe and to find a great spouse and all that kind of stuff. Uh, if you're in business, you want to see your business to be profitable and to remain relevant. Uh, if you're a, a student, you want to get through your exams, get, finish your studies and graduate, and uh, you want to have fun in the process. If you're an older person, maybe like myself, you want to make sure that you've got enough money for retirement and to make sure that your parents in their elderly years to be well looked after. Uh, we all have goals and aspirations and things that, that we're trying to pursue in life. And sometimes we write them down and sometimes we don't. They're just in our head. You ask maybe the question, well, why are we talking about this? Why are we talking about aspirations and goals? Because it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. And by that, I don't mean just in preparation for this sermon today. Uh, it's something I've been thinking about for well over a year, and I've been praying about it and thinking and talking to people about what are the spiritual goals that we have as Christ followers? What are those things that we really want to be pursuing as a, as a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, over the last little while, I've been studying in Scripture, and I know that the Bible talks about goals. The Apostle Paul said in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he said, he said his goal was to live a God-pleasing life. And Jesus said he came not to please himself, but to please the one who sent him. And so having goals in life, this is not something that's, that's unbiblical. It's clearly something that's honoring to God. So as I've been praying and thinking about this issue of, of goals as a Christ follower, I think, first of all, for myself, what is it that God would want me to do? But as the National Superintendent of the Wesleyan Church of Canada, I'm also thinking about what are those spiritual goals that God would have for us as a denomination to be pursuing? I've been thinking about this a lot, and I feel that God has laid on my heart three things that apply to me personally, but I believe they also apply to us as a denomination. And the first of those pursuits is this, to pursue purity. Purity, purity of heart. The opposite of purity, as we would know, would be things that are defiled, uh, something that's going on within us, perhaps, that is impure, an infection, a stain. And we all know that there are degrees of purity. Uh, if you're an older person, you may remember the ivory soap slogan that says, ivory soap, it's 99.44% pure. Uh, if you've been around for a while, you've heard that slogan at some point. I looked it up just out of interest, and I found out that that slogan was actually first used in 1895. It's been around that long. But more contemporary, something that happened actually just the other day, uh, my wife and I had a, a friend came in to do some water testing on our house to see about how pure the water was in our house. And after he did all of his tests, and, and this is what he does for work, uh, he looked at me and he said, Steve, he said, he said, of all the houses that I've looked at, he said, your house has got the greatest amount of sediment in the water of any house that I've, I've ever seen. Well, you look at the water when it comes out of the tap, and it appears to be pure. I mean, you don't see anything. But when they add the right chemicals and they, they, they shake the thing up, eventually you see all this sediment that's actually in there. Well, the more impure something is, the less attractive and the less usable it is. So, for instance, 
if you have gas in your car and you've got a little bit of water or a little bit of dirt in that, we know that the net effect of having something impure in the water is it makes the car run less well. Now, if you're a bride and you've got a beautiful white dress and 99% of your dress is just that brilliant white, but you've got this great big smudge spot right here, maybe you, you slipped and fell into something and you got a, like a grass stain right here. You look at this thing and, and people's eyes, they don't go to what's white, they immediately go to what's impure and it makes the dress less attractive and less valuable. If you think about other areas of impurity, you think of like mold on bread and you look at this loaf of bread that you've bought and the whole loaf is, is just wonderfully soft and white and everything is really great, but you look at the one end and there's this green mold that's growing on the end of it. Even though most of the bread is nice and pure, it's the way it's supposed to be, you look at this green mold and it's off-putting and it's kind of repulsive. Well, King David understood this. He said in Psalm 51, he said, God, create in me a pure heart. There is something that should be a longing within all Christians that the condition of our heart would be increasingly pure. Now, to be clear, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm clear on this point. I'm talking to Christians. I'm not talking about whether or not you're a child of God. You know, when you become a child of God by faith and you've surrendered to him and you've repented of your sin, in that moment, your name is written in heaven. You're going to heaven. But there's something that usually arises in the minds and hearts of people as they're, as they're following Christ. You look at the book of Colossians chapter 1, for instance. Clearly, Colossians uh, is written to Christians. Very clear in that point. But you come into chapter 3, and you start looking at what was going on in the lives of these Christians. And it's really repulsive. I mean, there's sexual immorality. There's rage and anger and filthy language. There's theft and lying. There's all kinds of things that are going on. And it begs the question, well, uh, is he not writing to Christians? How could it be that a child of God can have all this terrible stuff going on in their lives? The truth of the matter is that when we become a Christian, we are forgiven for our sins. But that does not mean that our heart is pure. It is possible to have a pure heart. Jesus said so himself in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart. And in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel, God says, I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. But then just before that, he said, and I will cleanse them from all of their impurities. So clearly, it's possible to have a pure heart. And so as a child of God begins to, to walk with the Lord, they discover that even though they know that they're forgiven, even though they know that their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, there's this challenge that's going on within them that the inclination of their heart is not right. The bent to sin is still there. This impurity on the inside is still there. And it's something that God can and wants corrected within the life of a believer. There's a dual responsibility. Paul says in the book of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he said, purify yourself from everything that contaminates body and spirit. And so there is an expectation on us that God expects us to clean up our own lives the best that we are able to. But eventually we all come and face things in our lives 
that are bigger than ourselves. It's not just trying harder. It's not just developing a different mindset. It's not just even reading the Word of God. There's actually something deeper within us that needs to be corrected. And Paul writes to the Romans, and he says, for God purified their hearts. So yes, we have a responsibility to clean up our own act and all the things that we can. God won't do that for us. But when we finally come to the point where we realize there is something deeper within us, there's another work of God that he wants to do within us that is only achievable by God himself. The best analogy I've ever come up uh, on this issue is the issue of the bend of a tree, a bent tree. At our house in Sussex, uh, New Brunswick, right in front of our house uh, is the chapel for Kingswood University. And if you're ever there, right in front of the chapel, there's a, a number of trees that are growing there. The prevailing wind that comes into Sussex comes from this direction. And as a result, those trees that are right in front of the chapel have a very distinct bent to them. If that tree is going to fall, it's going to fall this direction. It's not going to fall this way. It's not going to fall that way. It's not going to fall this way. Because of the bent of the tree, its natural inclination is to fall this direction. That's pretty analogous to the bent of our heart, the sinful nature that's within us. All of us are created with a sinful nature when we're born. And in sin did my mother conceive me. And Paul talks about that which I know that I shouldn't be doing. That's exactly what I do. The things that I really want to do, I have such a hard time. There's this bent to sin that's natural within all people. It's called the sin nature. I did not have to train any of my kids to sin. I've got three children. I didn't have to sit them down and say, here's how you lie. Here's how you steal. Here's how you be selfish. Here's how you be prideful. I didn't have to do any of that because it's natural within all people to have this bent towards sin. And what God wants to do is he wants to correct that bent, this impurity, this imperfection within us. He wants to correct the bent of sin within us so the tree is standing upright. There are times in my life that I could give testimony that the bent of sin within me is gone. But then there are other times in my life where I know the bent to sin is alive and well within me. I remember a number of years ago I was in Ottawa and I was uh, meeting up with somebody. We happened to be meeting at uh, Bronson Avenue at the McDonald's that, that was there. And uh, we were sitting across the table from one another. We were having a conversation. Um, and I will confess, uh, he was talking uh, at me, but my mind was on something entirely different. And he kept talking. And finally, I said to my friend, I said, what we're talking about is really important. But would you mind if we just stop talking for a moment? I've got something I need to deal with God over. And the issue was, I knew there was some strong bitterness and anger within me, some really, really bad attitudes towards some people. So this bent to do what's wrong, this inclination away from the heart of God uh, was alive and well within me. And so I asked my friend, I said, would it be okay if we just stopped talking for a moment? I, I said, I need to pray about something. And so he said, yeah, I guess so. So I just bent my head there at McDonald's and I started to pray and I said, God, I know the bent to sin is alive and well within me. It needs to be corrected. Would you purify my heart? Would you cleanse this sin nature within me and help me to be able to stand upright and holy before you? I believe the first thing, both personally and as a denomination, 
God is calling us these aspirational goals, these, these things that we should be pursuing. It's the pursuit of a pure heart. But there's a second thing I believe God is calling us to. And that's the pursuit of power. I'm not talking about positional power and I'm not talking about physical strength power. I'm talking about power that enables both victorious living and effective service for God. Because the reality is the church of Jesus Christ is incredibly anemic. We are incredibly weak. We've got great potential. We've got a great mission that God has given us, but we are weak. I find it incredibly interesting that the last two sentences that Jesus said to his disciples just before he ascended back to heaven, the very last thing he said was a blessing on his disciples, and the Bible says then he ascended into heaven. But the last two things that he said before he ascended to heaven, these are word for word what Scripture says. The last thing he said, stay in Jerusalem until you've been clothed with power from on high. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. I think that's fascinating that the last two things that Jesus said to his disciples just before he went back to heaven had everything to do with power for the mission that he was giving his disciples. Those of you who are older, uh, you probably will remember uh, the days of remote control cars. My son, when he was little, he had a bunch of remote control cars, some Jeeps and different things like that. And I can remember watching him play and he'd have his remote control and the cars would be kind of buzzing on the floor. Uh, maybe a little bit more contemporary analogy would be of, of a drone, the drones with the, the propellers on them that, that fly all over the place. But what happens when the batteries get weak in a remote control car? Or what happens when the batteries in the drone are getting weak? Or if you want to even think about your laptop computers, what happens when your, the batteries in your laptop get weak or get run down? You look at the potential of this remote control car. You look at the potential of the drone to, to fly high and with its video capacities. You look at the potential of the laptop and you say, man, this laptop's got a ton of, of abilities. But if the power is not there, its potential means little. It needs the full battery energy that's available to make the thing do what it's supposed to do. I teach at Kingswood University, and I'm surrounded by wonderful staff. I'm surrounded by great faculty. I love our students. They come from all over North America and beyond. And I'm here to tell you, they have passion. They've got a ton of potential. They're really amped up about things like helping people escape from the, the sex trade. Uh, they're really concerned about things like uh, feeding the poor and drilling wells uh, in places where people don't have access to uh, clean water. Uh, they're really concerned about working with orphans and children and, and abused individuals. I mean, they, they've got great passion. But my great concern is, do they have the power of God to make it happen? The greater the task, the greater the need for the power of God. The truth of the matter is, the church is right now reaping the results of operating without the benefits of the Holy Spirit's power. We are getting meager, meager results 
for what it is that we're trying to do. Great potential, but we lack power. I'm reminded of the story of D.L. Moody. Uh, some of you would recognize that name from the 1800s, a great uh, preacher in the Chicago area, uh, one of the first mega churches ever in North America, and uh, well-known, highly respected man of God. And one day after he had finished preaching, he came down off the platform and uh, was talking with some of the congregation, huge, huge church uh, for the 1800s. And these two little old ladies were down front. And as they were um, talking, the the two little old ladies said to him, uh, Reverend Moody says, we're praying for you. And he thanked them and said, thank you for that. He says, uh, says, but why aren't you praying uh, for the congregation? They need prayer. And these two little old ladies said, we're praying for you because you lack the power of God in your life. And he was totally taken back. He he said himself, he found it a bit of an affront that he's got the largest church, one of the largest churches in all of North America, well-known reputation, good things happening in the life of the church. But these two ladies said, we're praying for you because you lack the power of God in your life. It really disturbed him, first of all, he took it as a personal affront, but the more he thought about it, the more convinced he became, I think these ladies are right. And so there arose within him a great desire for the power of God to be manifested in his life. And he began praying earnestly and seeking after the empowerment of God. He writes, and I'm going to actually read what happens later. He was in New York City. He was walking up the street. He was continuing this prayer. God, I need your power. I don't want to continue in ministry if I don't have the unction and anointing of your Holy Spirit upon me. And I'm going to read to you what he said happened to him as he was walking up the street. He said, well, one day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It's almost too sacred an experience to name. Paul had an experience in which he never spoke of for 14 years. I can only say that God revealed himself, and I had such an experience of his love. I had to ask God to stay his hand. I went to preaching again. The sermons were no different. I did not present any new truths. Yet now, hundreds were converted. I would not now be placed back where I was before that blessed experience if you should give me the whole world. Same sermons. Same content, entirely different results, because now the energy, the the empowerment of God's Holy Spirit was upon his life. A much more recent example is a man named Adam Hamilton. I've actually been to Adam Hamilton's church in Kansas City. It's a mega church. If I lived in the area, I would probably go to his church. But he tells a story on himself that he was coming up to a Christmas Eve services. And again, it's a huge church. They had six Christmas Eve services that they were conducting that year. As he was driving to the church for those first of those six Christmas Eve services, he felt that God said to him, Adam, you did not pray very much for these services. And Adam Hamilton described his own reaction. He said, God, he said, You're absolutely right. He said, I was so busy working on my sermons and making sure everything was right with the the Christmas Eve service. He said, I was not praying and asking for your presence and help with the service. So when he got to the church, again, a big mega church, he began going from pew to pew 
aisle to aisle, praying and asking for the presence of God to be in the service. Time came for the first service. His wife was there. Hundreds of people were there. He preached at the Christmas Eve service. And by his own admission, he says, it was okay. He said, lots of nice comments after the first service. Same thing happened with the second service. Same thing happened with the third service. And then he tells the story that after the third service, he felt that God spoke to him again. And he said, God said to me, I let you preach on your own those first three services. Now I'm going to show you what it's like when I show up. As the fourth service began, he said there was something entirely different in the atmosphere. The sense of the presence of God. And when he got up to speak, he said, he said you could have heard a pinfall. He said people were deeply, deeply moved by what happened in that fourth service. And then the fifth service. And then the sixth service... His wife was again present. She was present in the first service. She was present in the last service. And after the last service, his wife came up to him and said, Adam, when did you change your sermon? He said, the truth of the matter was, I did not change my sermon. It was the exact same sermon. But the presence of God to make the preaching of God's word effective, to change the atmosphere, to open up people's hearts, to to bring a sense of conviction. The presence of God made all the difference in the world. I'm sensing that God is asking us to pursue three things. The first one I've already mentioned is the pursuit of pure hearts, that God would actually correct the bent of sin within us and give us pure hearts. Second of all is the pursuit of power. A power for service, a power that causes that we have great potential. We've got a great mission, but we need the power of God. And the third thing I believe God's laid on my heart is the pursuit of passion, which is a little different than power. Jesus said the great command is to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. That is the great Commission, that is the great commandment, is to, to love God passionately. There has got to be some place in between apathy and indifference and blandness and wild enthusiasm. Like we're not, as Canadians, we would typically be in this camp over here. We tend to be just kind of a little bit apathetic, a little bit indifferent, a little bit mellow. That tends to be where we are. Uh, on the other hand, we don't want to be crazy people that are swinging from chandeliers or something. There's got to be some place in between where there is a passion for God, a passion for his word, a passion for the work of God, a a passion for prayer, a passion for the lost people. There's got to be something within us that rises up that is a passion for God. Love is quantitative. It's not like you've either got love or you don't have love. It's a lot like the issue of purity. There, There are degrees of purity. There's certainly degrees of power. But there's also degrees of love. Most of us would be familiar with the passage that says, no greater love hath any man than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. Jesus looked at a woman one time, and he says, she loves greatly because she's been forgiven greatly. God has poured out his love into our hearts. 
Love is quantitative. You can have a greater degree of passion and love for his word, for prayer, for the the mission of God. You can have way more passion than what we typically have. I was thinking about this issue of passion and my mind went to uh, the story of Charles Finney. Again, uh, he was in the early part of the 1800s and uh, many people that you would recognize, maybe Charles Finney's name, a great revivalist. But he also was sensing that there was a deficiency in the love that he had for God. And I'm going to tell you word for word what he described happened to him one day. He said, the Holy Spirit descended on me in a manner that seemed to go through me, body and soul. I could feel the impression like waves of electricity going through and through me. Indeed, it seemed I could, it came in waves and waves of liquid love, for I could not express it in any other way. It seemed the very breath of God. I can re- recollect distinctly. It seemed to fan me like immense wings. I believe God has laid on my heart that there's three things, both for me personally and for us as a denomination in these days. It's the pursuit of pure hearts. I don't care about the power or the passion. If, if our hearts are not right with God, it doesn't matter how much power and passion that we've got. The first issue is to make sure that our hearts are right with God. But then second of all, is this issue of the pursuit of the power of God. We don't want to be like the remote controlled cars. We don't want to be like the drones or the laptops, that the, the battery is weak in it and it's not f- able to function the way that it's able to function. We need the power of God. But we also need the passion of God. The passion for worship, the passion for his word, the passion for prayer. I really felt very impressed. This is what God has laid on my heart to share with you today. And I'm wondering if you're sensing something within you that says, yes, some of this or all of this resonates with me. Maybe you resonate with the very first thing that I talked about, this issue that there's this inclination. You know you're a Christian. You know that if you die, you're going to heaven. But they're still battling the bent of sin. And I'm here to tell you, God can do something about that. God can sanctify and purify the heart. For some of you, that may be the first time you've ever heard that. You thought that maybe forever you need to battle this inclination to sin. I'm here to tell you, God can give us pure hearts if we'll go after it. Or maybe the issue is power. You sense in your own life that what you're doing is only, you're only achieving what you're, only, what you're able to achieve on your own your own creativity, your own pursuit of excellence, your your own abilities. And you recognize, I'm missing the power of God in my life. Or maybe you're just kind of bland and you're just kind of indifferent. And you say, there's something about loving God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Maybe that's the one that resonates with you. I'm inviting you in 2020 to join me. I've adopted these for myself. These are the three things. These are the goals, the aspirational. These are the objectives that I'm going after is to make sure my heart is right, the power of God is present in my life, and that the passion of God is, is real in my life as well. I wonder if you would join me right now as we pray. Father, I thank you for this time sharing. I pray, Father, that you would take what I've been sharing, and what is true and what is noble and what is good and honoring, that which is consistent with your will for our lives and for our denomination, for our local churches. 
I pray, Father, that you would make these something within us that wells up and says, that's exactly what I need to go after. In this season of life, that's the goal as a Christ follower I need to be following after. I pray, Father, give us pure hearts. Do in us what we cannot do for ourselves. We'll do our part. We'll purify ourselves from what we can, what contaminates body and spirit as much as we're able. But we need you to do what we cannot do, to correct the bent of sin within us. We hear, Father, your son's last words is that there's a power for the mission, and we need that power. We need you to do what Paul talks about in Romans where he says, look what God accomplished through me, through signs and wonders and miracles, through the power of the Holy Spirit. We need you to evidence yourselves in our lives in powerful ways. And we don't want to be bland Christians. We don't want to be vanilla. We want to be like John Wesley talked about, people that were enthusiasts. And I know, Lord, that sometimes he used that word in not a positive way. But we would rather be on fire for you than just to be some smoldering uh, embers in in a fireplace someplace. We want to have a fire lit within us that loves you passionately. So I pray, Father, would you take what's been shared today? Would you apply it to our lives and help us to pursue you with all passion? We thank you. Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you.